Who owns progress, the endless frontier? In the last year, the American government seems to have turned its back on scientific evidence. So there's a larger opportunity for private organizations to invest in furthering research and development. But science fiction, more often than not, tells us that benevolent science is soon twisted and distorted by the greed of corporations. This is Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly. In this episode, I'm discussing privatizing science. I have to be specific about what I mean by privatizing. I mean, who pays for it? Who owns it? Who gets to control what's done with it? And by science, I mean the foundational research on which technology is created. I've also heard it referred to as basic science. While I want to talk about the technology that's based on basic research, I also want to talk about where this foundational science is coming from. I know that I personally always imagined science being done in universities, in academic settings, with some private labs mixed in. So first, let's talk about paying for science and technology. Who funds research? Public governments or private organizations? In my college and grad school years, albeit in the social sciences, professors and their students were always doing research. I helped my advisor with a few projects as well as did my own um, senior thesis and undergrad and master's thesis. We'd write papers and make posters and take them to research conferences. I always really liked going to conferences. I liked talking about my own work a little bit, but I really liked seeing what other people were doing in the field. Most people I saw, uh, their research was funded by the university where they worked at, but that's not always true. Other people had their research funded by private organizations. A couple of years ago, I read a really great profile of George Church. He's a scientist responsible for a lot of the discoveries in genetics. His lab has been working on bringing back the woolly mammoth from extinction. In the article, I read that in the first few slides of his presentations, he includes the corporate logos of the organizations that have funded his research. He said, Industry is an essential part of what we do. You can't just hoard your ideas inside the ivory tower. You have to get them out into the world. I think there's some truth to that. If the most money is in private business, and businesses want to fund research, then why not use that money to do that? However, on the flip side, I also read an article about how Mars Candy is funding research that suspiciously finds that chocolate is good for you. And there were plenty of instances of tobacco companies funding research that would say that tobacco was fine for the human body. And that's why it's so important to be critical about the science news we read, first of all. But it also has a more cynical outlook on why corporations want to fund research. Now I want to talk about the technology that's developed from this basic research. Often, whoever funds the research has rights over what is produced. We are familiar with copyrights and trademarks. That's why I can't use recognizable music in my podcast. It's why you can't give away millions of copies of your favorite movie. But property rights were created to inspire innovation. If a creator knew that they could possibly make money off of their creation and could be protected from it being stolen and copied by competitors, then it incentivizes their creation, right? 
Well, the same thing happened with science. Companies, universities, and the government believe that whatever comes out of funding research will eventually lead to dividends uh, for their shareholders or awards and prestige their university, what have you. So they invest money in the research. But there's conflict when this foundational research is copyrighted and stored away from other use. There's this idea of the commons, a body of research that will inspire progress and collaboration. Um, I've heard it referred to as the endless frontier, as if it's a public space, kind of like public lands. I've read a couple articles that use this metaphor a lot. So publicly funded research is then owned publicly. It is typically more accessible for future research to grow from it. When a private organization does research, sometimes they don't publish it in journals. They'll keep it in-house for further development. Which is another point as to why publicly funded research is a major plus. So now I'm going to talk about the science fiction side. So recently I read a book called Extreme Makeover by Dan Wells. The main character is a chemist for a beauty product company. His name is Lyle. In the beginning, Lyle creates this anti-aging lotion that will rebuild collagen in the skin, the ultimate beauty product. He imagines publishing his research, getting the product approved by the FDA, and getting the cover of American Scientist, or Scientific American. But once the board of directors for his company hears of the product, they decide to hide the research package the product so that it doesn't flag any FDA regulations, and then market it worldwide. Their urgency to get the product on the shelves, no surprise there, literally leads to disaster when it turns out that Lyle has created a product that not only clones collagen cells, but clones actual people. And that's where it really becomes a science fiction book. But I thought it was a pretty realistic view of corporations and uh, their their interests. Which isn't to say that government-funded research is always free from corruption and greed. I read an article by Amy Chin in the New York Times about the prestige of scientific research in China and how little checks on it is leading to a lot of fraud, like fudging of results. So the biggest example that I recall was a paper claiming to have found a fast, cheap way to reverse program cells into stem cells uh, that could be used for many uses. They're called pluripotent stem cells. But the results were actually fudged. The paper was retracted, but not before an author of the paper committed suicide because of the controversy. Not to mention the fact that private interests lobby the government all the time. For instance, the U.S. government hasn't put money into researching gun violence for 25 years. Likewise, the EPA has fired or censored almost every scientist that works for the agency. The administration has practically reversed its position on climate change, and that's had a big impact on the participation of private industry in um, alternative energy. For example, um, between 20 to 37% of energy for the uh, Dakotas, Kansas, and Iowa is from wind energy. And wind energy used to get a lot of federal funding. But the federal government is not funding any exploration or expansion in wind energy anymore. So now private industries are stepping in. Even with the waning of federal support for wind energy, Um, wind energy is still booming in states like Iowa. 
Uh, for example, the Mid-American Energy Company has customers in Iowa, South Dakota, and Illinois. Uh, used to have no wind energy as recently as 2003. But now in 2017, they're up to 56% of their energy is from wind. And they have a goal to be 95% by 2021. But this article that I read uh, mentions that the federal tax credit for generating wind power um, might end as early as 2019. So companies will have to adjust because of that. John Hensley from the American Wind Energy Association said that to adjust for waning federal support, uh, companies should invest in research and development, which ties back to what I was saying earlier. He said, we're seeing companies pick up internally a lot of the research and development efforts that were previously provided by some of these government entities. So that's just another example of this kind of balance between public-funded research and private-funded research. And when public-funded research kind of diminishes, private companies have to step in. What I'm saying is the issue of public or private-owned science is a gray area, and there's a lot of bias on both sides. So I don't want to seem like I'm coming out specifically for public funding and or just private funding. We should be critical when we're looking at who's funding research. So other than Dan Wells, what else does this look like in science fiction? I recently finished season one of the TV show Expanse. And what I found really interesting just out of the gate was the conflicts between the characters due to working for different corporations. When I thought that they'd be typically dealing with conflict between characters or centralized government, which they sometimes do too. For example, um, Miller, he's the gumshoe detective type, but he doesn't work for the police. He works for a private security company. They aren't really, they don't really have to follow laws and often take contracts to do hits or kidnap jobs. An interesting example that I didn't really think about was that when he busts open the door, he doesn't say police, he says Star Helix, which is the name of his company. And this privatization extends through every part of the universe. Um, one of the spaceships is owned by a private company, and all of the crew are employees. They worry about making bonuses and getting reimbursed for being injured on the job. These are the things that are so familiar to us now but we never really considered them in, like, the final frontier. In an early episode, there's a flashback to a bunch of miners, like they do, you know, mineral mining, and their families on an asteroid. The miners brought their families to their work site. They were promised it was safe by their company, but then their children started to get really sick. The company wouldn't do anything about it, so the miners went on strike and took over the headquarters. Right when they started to surrender, the striking miners and their children were annihilated in space. And this actually happened in real life. For example, workers for the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company went on strike in 1914 to protest working conditions in coal mines. The National Guard and the guards for the Fuel and Iron Company killed workers and their wives and children. The owner of the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company... John D. Rockefeller. They call this the Ludlow Massacre, and it was a watershed moment for child labor laws and the eight-hour workday, because people of the world heard about it and organized. 
But what about in space, when problems can't be solved and people can't organize from light years away? So these were extreme examples, but I just wanted to make the connection between science fiction and like the Wild West. Like I said, a lot of scientists use the metaphor of the endless frontier. I've seen comparisons between funding and patent law to protecting the frontier or divvying it up like they did with the West in the early 20th century. Like I said in the first episode, there's a pressure to be first to patent the newest technology, kind of like being the fastest draw. One of my favorite examples of this is the Terminator series. I've watched every single movie in the Terminator franchise. Yes, even the one you're thinking of. And the series, The Sarah Connor Chronicles. While the films are getting more and more ridiculous, it is clear by now that they just can't stop Judgment Day. No matter which timeline, which person is sent back in time, Skynet will always be created. Because even if they stop one scientist, one military contract, there will always be someone behind them to create it. An example like this is the CRISPR-Cas9 technology. Now, I'm a big fan of CRISPR-Cas9. I think it's revolutionary. But their dispute over patents reminds me of this issue. So, CRISPR-Cas9 is a find-and-replace tool for genes. Unlike epigenetics, where your DNA changes and how it's expressed, CRISPR can actually change your DNA. It can target specific genes and cut out a specific part and replace it with a new gene. This technology has amazing implications for diseases that are a result of like a mutation in just a single gene, for example, sickle cell anemia or Tay-Sachs. But it's also one of those technologies that slippery slope arguments were made for. So it's important who owns it and who gets to decide what it's used for. So two teams created it at around the same time, University of California, Berkeley and the Broad Institute. Berkeley filed the patent for this technology first, and the Broad Institute second, but they filed this patent on using it on different kinds of cells. So the Broad Institute paid a fee to expedite the patent review process. Berkeley then filed an injunction so the U.S. had to investigate. While Berkeley got their patent first, the Broad Institute patent is for different kinds of cells. UC Berkeley has filed an appeal, and as of this recording, the issue is going to the Federal Court of Appeals. What I thought was interesting was that while these organizations fought patent law, the tech was available to be uh, researched further by academic institutions, as long as they weren't, you know, trying to make money from it. But it really couldn't progress to, like, uh, clinical trials until they figure this out. And while people should be discussing the implications for this kind of technology— the direction it goes in could be decided by the Court of Appeals. Remember what we talked about, the spirit behind patent law. It's to keep people from making copies so that you can make money from what's developed from it. The government shouldn't entirely turn over scientific research to private companies, but if the government is going to fund only biased research that gets a specific result, then private companies should step in. However, the general public should be in the know because eventually this research and technology is going to affect our lives. I hope I gave you a lot to think about. A lot of these issues are from the news just recently, so you'll probably see a lot more going on. While I use some extreme examples, 
I do think that we're not so far away from the kind of issues that movies like Terminator and shows like The Expanse and books like Extreme Makeover talked about. Even Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla and the head of SpaceX, has been warning people about the dangers of unregulated AI. SpaceX is also a good example of private companies kind of stepping in. They're working on launching rockets, and they recently launched a rocket successfully that took South Korea's satellite to orbit. But back to AI, Elon Musk is also a founder of OpenAI, a nonprofit that promotes safe development of AI, which kind of goes counter to a lot of technology uh, companies that are just kind of charging forward. CNBC called Musk a fierce and longtime critic of AI uh, who once likened it to summoning the demon in a horror movie. So I hope you think about these things when you're watching or reading the news and you see something new about some new technology or new research. Try to figure out who funded it and where this research is coming from. In my next segment, I'm going to talk about news in the sci-fi and science universe. So Stranger Things Season 2 came out recently, and I loved it. I watched it all in one day. Um, I love Stranger Things um, because of the nostalgia, the friendships, the clever use of Dungeons and Dragons, and real science. They use real physics in Season 1, and in Season 2 they involve neuroanatomy and how it relates to networks of viruses. There's a huge homage to Jurassic Park throughout the season, which is one of my favorite sci-fi movies. Also, Thor Ragnarok came out last week, and I read a really cool article about the science consultant, Dr. Clifford V. Johnson. He helped the director, uh, Taika Waititi, work physics into the movie. So I really like this quote from the article. He said, I see physics as storytelling. To some extent, all of science is. Not just in communicating the idea, but the whole business of finding out why a thing is the way it is, and how that thing gets to be the way it is. These are the same sets of questions we ask when we're telling stories. In real science news, I started reading Scott Kelly's autobiography, Endurance, about his year in space. So Scott Kelly is an astronaut who is the subject of a very interesting experiment. He spent almost a year on the International Space Station while his twin brother, also an astronaut, Mark Kelly, stayed on Earth. Since his return, they've done a bunch of studies on the differences between Scott and Mark to compare how space has affected Scott's body. A new paper said that Scott's time in space affected him at the epigenetic level, increasing the amount of genes that were turned off compared to Mark. As soon as I heard about this experiment last year, I immediately thought of Robert Heinlein's book, Time for the Stars. This book was published in 1956, before humans had even orbited the Earth. While this book has more of a sci-fi twist than in real life, it makes me wonder what Highland would have thought if he knew this actually happened in just a couple of generations. Next episode, I'll be discussing gender and sexuality. Science fiction is lauded as the most inclusive genre, from Star Trek to Doctor Who and more. 
It's like in the future we've broken free from sexism and homophobia, we're all just people living in the universe. I'll be discussing the science behind gender and sexual orientation, if this utopia of post-sexism, post-homophobia society is actually within our grasp, and discuss critically why sci-fi has the reputation it does. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get this podcast. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fact and Sci-Fi. Check out the transcript and other content at factandsci-fi.blogspot.com. And lastly, thanks for listening.